You're about to listen to the Tech UK podcast, first released in June 2018. Hi everyone, this is Sue Daly, Head of Cloud, Data Analytics and AI here at Tech UK and welcome to the first edition of the Tech UK podcast. Tech UK prides itself on being the voice of the industry, so now you can hear us on our brand new podcast. Here we bring the tech community the latest industry news, views and upcoming events. In each podcast, we'll interview key industry, government and academic stakeholders, as well as bring you thoughts from the Tech UK team. Our first episode delves into the complex world of AI, cybersecurity and data protection. Something simple to get us started. Coming up, we have interviews with Tech UK's first UK AI leader and the Department of Work and Pensions Head of Data, as well as a discussion between our team on the May GDPR compliance deadline and how it will impact the AI community. But first, let's look at what was making the news in May. Tech UK has welcomed the publication of the government's AI sector deal, which is the key part of taking the industrial strategy forward. The announcement came during Tech UK's AI Week, which focused this year on the issues that need to be addressed and steps to be taken to make every sector, every business and everyone in the UK AI ready. Commenting on the importance of the AI sector deal in positioning the UK to realise the full value and benefits of AI, Anthony Walker, Tech UK's Deputy CEO, said, the UK has an impressive record in AI, but we must keep pace and as the scale of innovation continues to accelerate, we need to do more to ensure the UK stays at the forefront in the development and application of these powerful new technologies. The government's AI sector deal provides a clear blueprint for how the UK can become a world leader in innovation, responsible and ethical AI. The sector deal focuses on the key issues of maintaining leadership and driving uptake, building the skills pipeline and ethics. Success will depend upon AI companies being deeply engaged in the process. Also coming up is Tech UK's annual dinner, this year being held on the 11th of July at the Royal Lancaster Hotel. This year will include speeches by the Right Honourable Matt Hancock MP, Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, and Kathy Newman, journalist and presenter of Channel 4 News. It's sure to be another sellout event, so we really hope to look forward to seeing you there. April sees the return of Tech UK's AI Week. During the week of the 23rd to 27th of April, we asked Tech UK members for their views and thoughts on what we need to do to make the UK truly AI ready, including how to drive AI adoption and use across all sectors and industries, ethical issues raised by AI, and how to prepare the UK workforce for our AI future. AI does have incredible potential to rapidly improve productivity, increase innovation and change lives for the better. But it's not just a simple case of implement and go. There are some hugely complex questions that must be answered as we go forward. Today, we'll take one element of this, discussing what AI means for data protection and the topic of the hour, GDPR. I'm here with my Tech UK colleague, Jeremy Lilly. Jeremy, do you just want to introduce yourself? Yes, thanks Sue. I am Jeremy. Um, I am Tech UK's Policy Manager for Data Protection and the Digital Single Market, looking at all things GDPR and, and otherwise related. Okay, so let's start with the obvious question. What exactly is GDPR and what's coming? Well, exactly. So what is GDPR? GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation, which has come out of the European Union. 
Uh, it was negotiated over about four, nearly five years, um, and it's the most significant reform in data protection law across Europe in over 20 years. It will dramatically change the way that personal information is stored, held, processed and used by companies of all size and sector. This is not just a technology issue. Yes, tech companies use and process a lot of personal data, but Personal data use is across uh, different industries and different sectors from financial services to retail, huge amounts of data in the public sector, um, in the delivery of public services. So this is something that will impact and affect industry across both the public and the private sector. And this is coming into force soon, right? Very soon. So uh, the GDPR will take effect on the 25th of May 2018. Technically it's already been in force for the last two years. Companies have had two years to prepare for the GDPR. We're waiting for a lot of guidance. Some of it we've got. We are still waiting for a little bit so that companies can turn a 150-odd page regulation into practical updated business practices. Um, but yes, uh, 25th of May is the deadline for GDPR compliance. So we're looking today at how we make the UK AI ready and how we drive adoption and use of AI. So do you think GDPR could negatively impact the development of AI technologies here in the UK? So it's a question that I and I imagine a lot of others have been asked a lot. Um, AI uh, development is very exciting. There's a lot going on in that um, industry at the moment. And yes, with these new significantly reformed data protection rules, which do increase responsibilities on companies on the on the way that they process and handle personal data. So yes, it, it probably will have a little bit of an effect on the development of AI technologies on the basis that AI relies on access to data and the use of data to advance those technologies, machine learning, um, advanced data analytics, and all of it will be impacted by, by GDPR. Um, particularly, for example, there are limitations on the use of data and repurposing of data. So data can only be collected for one purpose. AI requires multiple purposes, purposes um, of, of data use. Um, so consumers will have to be, will have to reconsent for multiple purposes. So yes, it will have an impact. But GDPR also offers an opportunity to build trust and confidence in the UK in the use of data. For a long time, we've been talking about the potential of the data industry in the UK. Um, the data industry in the UK is expected to be worth uh, over £250 billion by 2020, and that stands to create possibly hundreds of thousands of new jobs as well. Um, but that will only be realised if there's true confidence and trust in the way that companies hold data and AI, and it's just as true for, for artificial intelligence. And the greater control that consumers will have over the way their information is consumed, is used, um, sorry, will um, allow them to move forward on that journey with companies rather than having it thrust upon them. So GDPR is really a kind of the issue of the day for companies right now. But clearly another big uh, issue that we have um, looming is Brexit is leaving the European Union. So looking at Brexit and looking at how we um, grow the AI industry perhaps in the UK, do you think we should be looking to diverge from GDPR post-Brexit to keep the UK AI industry thriving and growing as it is right now? It's, an, it's a really interesting question because for a long time the tech industry um, had concerns about GDPR in the UK and they were and the UK government were, were very active in in the policy making um, process in the e, in the European institutions at the time with questions over the impact as we've just been discussing that GDPR might have on on artificial intelligence and other new and emerging technologies um, but the question of now whether we should diverge away, away from GDPR takes on a whole 
whole new context with the with the UK leaving the European Union. And that is because once we leave the European Union, we do in effect leave the EU's data protection framework. And with that, we will be a third country and GDPR, but not just GDPR, the current data protection directive in the EU um, has requirements on the flow of personal data outside of the EU to third countries. Uh, and with the UK becoming a third country, we will be subject to those requirements of an assessment on whether the UK's data protection laws uh, sufficiently protect European data when it leaves the EU into a third country. Now, the free flow of data is hugely important to the tech industry, to artificial intelligence, but to the entire economy, both public and private sector. For example, banks who rely on the use of the free flow of data to detect money laundering or financial crime. Um, the retail sector require it. There's, it has huge implications um, across the board. We're talking about artificial intelligence now, but other emerging technologies such as driverless cars and autonomous autonomous vehicles um, all require that free flow of data across borders and data knows no borders. Uh, data um, underpins trade uh, across different um, different elements of, of the economy and um, so that free flow of data is fundamentally important. Uh, with the, as I say with the UK leaving the EU we will have to be assessed in terms of the level of our data protection rules. Um, the test is an essential equivalence test um, essentially determining whether the UK or any other third country have equivalent data protection laws to the EU. And the result of that, the way to resolve the issue of the UK leaving the EU and, those, and that data continuing to flow is by the UK and the EU agreeing mutual adequacy decisions. That would allow the free flow of data to continue as we know it now. Now there are other methods that would allow data transfers to take place. Uh, companies can implement binding corporate rules, but that they are incredibly expensive, incredibly difficult to obtain, and are only suitable for intra-group transfers for large multinational companies. You can also implement standard contractual clauses, but that would require huge legal work at, at great cost, and standard contractual clauses, or SCCs as they're known, um, are currently subject to legal challenge, and we're not actually sure about whether in the future they will be a suitable method for data transfers. Uh, there are also hypothetically other methods under GDPR such as codes of conduct, certifications, seals, but none of those actually exist at the moment. So really the only suitable mechanism available for, for UK industry is to achieve an adequacy agreement with the EU. Now whilst you don't need an exact carbon copy of the EU's data protection rules, alignment on data protection issues with the EU is incredibly important and an incredibly important first step to the UK agreeing mutual adequacy decisions with the EU. There is no substantial benefit to diverging away from the EU's general data protection regulation and Tech UK very much um, welcomed and indeed we called for the government to commit to implementing GDPR despite the vote to leave the European Union. And for, if for no other reason, the GDPR, one of the big changes of GDPR is a new extraterritorial reach so that any country, wherever data processing takes place, if it is processing European data, it has to comply with GDPR. So GDPR will have a global reach. And that's not just true of the UK. US companies are having to implement GDPR. We've seen a lot in the news recently about large US companies and their approach to data to data protection and a lot of them are looking at rolling out GDPR requirements across their global operations for, for a number of reasons, partly because they will have to uh, comply with the rules for, for the European part of their operations. 
So that alignment is really is really important, and there is no um, tangible benefits for the UK really diverging on data protection and to undermine that ability for data to flow. AI requires access to data. Without access to European data, um, the UK will be in a more difficult position to thrive in AI. You, you raised there that, that data doesn't know borders, right? Data is global, and so is the AI industry right now. The UK, we have a real track record on um, the development and the use of AI. You mentioned financial services and retail, and we're seeing this, but we need to keep pace and scale as other countries move towards their AI future as well. Um, so where do you think we are right now, and where is the UK position, and what do you think we need to do to keep to keep pace with other countries as we all start to look at the opportunities AI brings? I think we I think we in the UK are in a very interesting and quite unique position um, in the, the global race for sort of AI leadership and we have a real opportunity in the UK to be a global leader in AI. We're never going to be the size of countries like the United States and China who just have a much wider scale and so they will they are, they are the natural competitors they are probably going to lead a lot of the tech, uh, development of, of AI simply because of the scale that they that they have within um, those within those countries. The data flows point that I was just talking about is incredibly important to that for the UK to have access to data in both Europe but also the US. Currently, we have a data flows agreement with the US as part of the EU. We'll have to replicate that in some way post Brexit. Um, so, making sure that we have those transatlantic data flows is important to access the scale of the US market as well as the European market. But we are also seeing in Europe many countries seeking to be that global leader um, in, in AI. And I think the interesting space that the UK can definitely operate in is developing the policy tools and the policy framework for an ethical use of AI. We saw that in the recent uh, House of Lords AI Committee report, where they said that's really where the AI industry in the UK can, can thrive. And the UK's thought leadership, which has always been world leading, the Information Commissioner office has always been a, um, a well thought of global regulator when it comes to data protection. We do have that, um, that thought leadership in the UK which I think really is where we stand uh, the best chance to lead. In April we had the EU's AI communication. It'll be interesting to see where that heads um, as, we, as that unfolds but many European countries are seeking to operate in that space as well. France, for example, we've had a lot of words from President Macron, who has invested heavily in AI. We've seen tech companies look to start up in, in France and in other European countries, partly because they know at the moment we don't know what the future is for data transfers in the UK. We very much hope they'll be able to continue and we think it's possible, but France doesn't have that issue that the UK does face, that uncertainty that the UK faces on that front. So I think that policy and that policy approach to maintaining a an ethical and and consumer friendly use of AI is is probably where the UK has the best chance of success in world in world leadership. Great, thanks, Jeremy, for that overview of some of the key issues in data protection, GDPR, and policy that we need to be thinking about uh, as we look at making the UK AI. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. talk about the key issues and areas we need to address in 2018 to make the UK AI ready. Today I'm joined by Kriti Sharma, Vice President of Artificial Intelligence at SAGE. 
Critty was recently named on the Forbes 30 Under 30 for advancements in AI. She was also a civic leader at the Obama Foundation Summit for her work in ethical technology. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, Google Grace Hopper Scholar, and Government of India's Young Leader in Science. So we're thrilled that Kriti can be with us today as she's just been named Tech UK's first UK AI leader as part of a year-long campaign to recognize and promote leaders in the UK helping organizations to become AI ready. Kriti, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me here, Sue. It's awesome. So perhaps to start, Kriti, could you just explain your role and what that involves on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, um, I run AI at Sage, which is a FTSE 100 company building software for small and medium-sized businesses. And if you think about who's actually benefiting from AI and other major digital technologies, there has been a big gap. Small businesses, medium-sized businesses are often left behind in any big digital revolution. And we are on a mission to give them these superpowers with AI. So there should not be any difference between the CEO of a FTSE 100 company and that of a small business. They should have the same capabilities of HR departments, finance departments, business insights, and using AI, we can do that. It's, um, it's quite shocking that businesses today are spending 120 days a year doing mundane admin tasks. Things like purchase ledgers, chasing for payments, invoices, Nobody enjoys that stuff. And this is 2018, this has to change. And we believe AI can boost productivity for those businesses. In addition to that, I work on um, another favorite project of mine. It's called Sage Future Makers Lab, where we are encouraging young people, young children from disadvantaged backgrounds or very different backgrounds who wouldn't necessarily think a career in AI is for them. It's an experience for them to come in and build some bots and robots and machine learning models and explore that this is actually a very interesting world. Um, and lastly, I would love to mention um, a very um, a fascinating project um, where we are using AI to help victims of domestic abuse in South Africa. Um, and this is one of those beautiful examples where machines can solve or fill a gap that humans can't. There's a lot of social stigma attached with talking about domestic abuse and violence. In countries like South Africa, one in three women face abuse, but they don't go and seek help. Um, but a digital tool or a digital friend can be a very convenient way to ask mm. for help when speaking to humans can be very difficult. Amazing work that you're leading and really driving at Sage. And you mentioned the importance about getting people into artificial intelligence. I'm just curious, what, what led you to go into and choose AI as a field? Um, it's not a very exciting story, I'm afraid. Um, I grew up in Rajasthan in India and um, I built my first computer when I was um, a teenager. And it wasn't a big deal, I did it because I didn't have one. So I read a few books and I thought, oh, okay, this is how you build a computer, I can do that. Um, and when I did that, I felt that I had uh, all my fears of technology and and when people tell you, don't open that, you'll break it, all of that went away. Uh, and I just thought, why not build a robot? So then I read in books and built a robot um, and just um, got really fascinated by the power of technology and also what it can do in the developing world in particular, where there are not enough resources, but machines working with humans can scale it. Um, and also, I still remember this event in my mind. When I was 16, I got invited to see a very early version of a voice recognition system in a government research lab. Uh, and this was a scientist who was talking to a voice system 
and he was making it do something in in a space application and it blew my mind away <laughs> and i was just wondering i hope in my lifetime i see a technology like this and i could bring it home yeah and and i was thinking about what it could do for my grandmother who had sight problems if she could just use her voice and i was really hoping i would see it in my own lifetime <laughs> it just seems silly because we have um, voice technologies like siri and alexa on our phones in our homes everywhere like god really it got that's when i started to see the value that ai one day will come into our lives it just happened sooner rather than later yeah it's a great time really to be working in this area because yes. this is really becoming a reality it's no longer science fiction right yeah exactly um, all the technology ai techniques have been around since 1960s um, i've worked on so-called supercomputers that are that are less powerful now than what I can spin off on uh, in the cloud very quickly, but um, now is a time when the, the the digital world is getting ready to adopt AI, um, not just from a technology perspective, but also. Um, human understanding. We're not that scared of it. It's starting to solve problems in our daily lives. So bringing it back to the UK, Tech UK's AI Week is focused on the key themes that we need to address to make the UK AI ready. My number one ask would be skills. You know, just skills, skills, skills. That's one area we really got to focus on. Getting people into the AI industry. You don't necessarily just need the technologies. I, I had several degrees in computer science and it, it was just a natural field for me. But this technology has evolved so much that if you're in the, the value of human elements, the creativity, um, people in linguistics, in, in legal world, anthropologists, they all need to come together to start working on AI. Um, so that's one. But secondly, also, if you look at the curriculum and the kind of the, the experience that younger kids are getting into the world of technology, their introduction to computer science, it needs to be diversified. Mm -hmm. At the moment, only only 1% of A-levels um, are in computer science. And when you look at underrepresented segments like women, girls, it's it's even less. So we've got to change how we deliver this experience to, to young people so that it's not just uh, yet another coding <laughs> project I have to do, but wow, these are all the problems I can solve with AI. I also believe we can learn a lot from other countries and governments. Um, in India, for example, they're spending a lot of money and, and a lot of resources to train millions of workers into the world of AI and other emerging technologies in the next few years. And I think we need to, to invest at that level into the skills and also retraining. Because um, it's a reality that AI is going to impact jobs, but we've got to make sure we set up the structure so people can come into, into the exciting world. So we're just following on that, what advice if we have someone listening to this who really wants to get in, interested and involved in AI, what advice would you give someone um, looking to pursue a career in AI? Where should they start? I think you just get started with building something. Um, like what I did uh, was a very scrappy version of a robot that would go and fetch Snickers chocolate from the snack bar. <laughs> but I'm sure kids today or people listening to the show today um, have better problems to solve with AI. So just get started. Um, there, it has never been easier to, to start building. Um, read an online course, build a model, build a bot, build a skill for your Alexa. You can see it in real time what it's doing. Start Start solving problems around you. And um, I believe that with AI, we're at a point where 
it's not just about the technology, but it's about what it can do for, for the world that we live in. So whether it's a little thing like automating your morning coffee maker and your toasters, automating your breakfast, like your personal butler, um, go ahead and do it. But if it is about solving a problem like um, making education more engaging or more fun, and go do it. Monitoring climate change. There's so much satellite data available now. So I would just say, get started. There really is not no excuse to not do it right now. And we talk about the huge potential artificial intelligence has for the UK across both, you know, both the public sector and private sector. And we at Tech UK really see it as you know, a power for social, social good and a power for change. With AI, there's a lot of excitement, but there's also some concerns. And we need to build greater trust and confidence in these technologies, particularly as they're being developed and deployed. Given that we need to build trust and confidence in AI, what do you think we need to, to do? Or how do you think we need to take the first steps to, to doing that, to bring everybody on this journey with us? Um, I think firstly we need to recognize that the problem with AI is not that it's you know, it's not as intelligent or as like as it's not, it's not similar to humans. The problem is it's very much like humans in that it has learned a lot of human biases and human stereotypes. You see a lot of these voice assistants with their female voices mm. and then we hear IBM Watson and Salesforce Einstein, these masculine personalities solving business problems. <laughs> it sounds very much like you know, 1960s, 1970s housewife shows, so soap operas or madman style secretaries. Um, we got to tackle bias in design. Um, and then also just accept the reality that technology has gone wrong. And this is self-learning capability. It can learn human biases and, and extrapolate it. For instance, a lot of facial recognition systems don't work on my skin tone because they haven't been trained on non-white skin tones. Um, similarly, it's it's impacting every part of our life, what you see on your social media feed, yeah. what news you consume, when more people are consuming news through social than, uh, than traditional sources. Um, and also we are spending more and more time online. Mm. So we gotta make sure that this technology is designed within the right framework. However, the good news is that it's entirely within our control. It's something that we can solve for. So when we build systems, we got to make sure we design them with trust and transparency and diversity from the beginning, mm. rather than trying to solve the problem further down the line. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's one element. And second is um, people building AI systems should also know that we must not overcommit or overpromise. Mm. It's not about replacing human jobs with AI but augmenting human capabilities with machines. There are some parts where, human, where AI can really excel by automation. Example, healthcare can do a lot of initial preliminary diagnosis, even triage, but it can't replace a human doctor, the interaction you have with them. So we just need to stop all this scaremongering and fear about technology is gonna come and take over, but focus on designing it in the right way today and working together with humans rather than against mm. them. So, so given the huge possibilities we have of AI, I'm interested, what excites you most about you know, maybe the next step in our AI journey? I think it's problem solving. Um, it's, 
really, quite frank, I've been working on AI systems since I was a teenager <laughs> in one form or the other. Um, but um, now is the time when we are, instead of talking about the technology, we are talking about what it can do for us. Ideally, we should not even have to talk about AI in the next few years. If we do our job right, it should just be yet another tool that's solving real humanitarian problems. And these problems could be the project that we're doing to help abuse victims in South Africa, or it could be something that's helping young children in schools in India. Who, you know, for example, my high school, we had 80 students to one teacher. And AI could, could add incredible value to create that personalized tutor experience. So when you focus on solving problems, rather than just the tools and, and the issues. And that, that's where I think we'll get, get to a point where we start to see the value. Well, I've, unfortunately, on that note, we're going to have to bring this fascinating conversation to a close, Kriti. I feel like we could go on forever. <laughs> but, but thank you so much for being with us today. We were thrilled you could join us. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank you. There is no company on earth, even the largest of multinationals, which comes close to having to coordinate the array of essential services and functions for millions of people that a modern government provides. That's what the Minister for the Cabinet Office has said when he announced the government's transformational strategy last year. And given the complexity of users' needs, how can data help the public sector to deliver world-class services at a time of rising demographic pressures and tightening budgets? Here to discuss this with us today, I'm delighted to welcome Giles Paley, Head of Data Strategy at the Department for Work and Pensions. Hello, nice to have you with us. Hi, nice to be here Sue. Great. Um, so Giles, perhaps um, could we kick off, talk a little bit about yourself and the work the data science team is doing here at DWP. So I've been a civil servant now for uh, six months and uh, it's an eye-opening experience <laughs> that I'm really enjoying. Uh, so I actually came to the civil service having, having worked for 25 years in uh, UK retail um, doing data and analytics at uh, a company called Dunhumby, so working on Tesco data. And um, coming here has, has been uh, in many parts uh, a real challenge and very different, but uh, in other parts really quite similar. So like Tesco, here at the DWP we have uh, tens of millions of customers, 22 million people use our services and we have uh, tens of thousands of uh, employees uh, spread around the country. Um, in terms of uh, the challenges, uh, our challenges are around really trying to understand what uh, our citizens need, understand uh, their behaviours and really take that understanding to provide the very best services that we can to uh, get the outcomes that, uh, uh, that uh, government wishes. So given the challenges you outlined there, um, what excites you most about how data and perhaps looking a bit into the future artificial intelligence could help to solve some of the challenges you are facing on a day-to-day -day basis? Having worked in data all of my uh, work career and having seen the power of computers uh, evolve uh, I couldn't really be more excited to, to see the possibility of what we can do uh, with data to really understand you know, what people need uh, and also use those same computers to really help us deliver that in the most relevant and uh, uh, efficient way possible. 
And this challenge of how do we do more uh, with less, you talked about the uh, increasing demographic uh, challenges that we all see that, that we face and obviously the, the pressures on, on public finances. And I really re believe that's a, a win-win situation where you know, not only through using uh, data and insights and analytics we can provide uh, better services but we can also do that more efficiently. Some of the most exciting work in data analytics um, and AI involve the coming together of large data sets and government's obviously been um, cautious about when it comes to sharing data to protect citizens' privacy and, and data protection. Um, but what does that mean for you guys in terms of being able to access the data you need to make the improvements to the services that we're looking for? Obviously we take uh, citizens' privacy uh, incredibly seriously. We are custodians of the, the data that, you know, that, they, that they give to us. Um, however, we have an ethical um, responsibility to use that data to give the best services that we can. And so we are clear that we want to use uh, only the necessary data, but to use yeah, all the relevant necessary data to give the best services we can. Here at the DWP, we've got, uh, I would say, a proud history of uh, making data um, at a macro level and, where relevant, at a, at a, a citizen level uh, available to other public bodies that, that need that. So uh, we, we give data to, to, to deliver public good. We uh, share data with the local um, authorities and other uh, departments. What we're keen to do is make sure that we fully understand our customers' situations. Uh, for um, the typical uh, citizen of Britain, they would expect that if they're dealing with government, that uh, the government uh, shouldn't be asking them the same questions over and over again. Uh, and that's something we uh, try to eliminate. Uh, we, we try to make our services as relevant as possible. And the, the better use of data and uh, uh, analytics are really the key to that. So that quite neatly leads me on to my next question. So to what extent is government responding to advances um, in the use of AI that we're seeing in, in the private sector? Um, do you think more could be done by industry to support um, innovation in public services? And if so, what do you think that kind of support would look like, particularly to enable public sector to embrace AI as perhaps the private sector is today? So, in order to deliver the, the services that we want to uh, deliver um, in an efficient way and you know, as relevant to customers as, as possible, we definitely believe that uh, machine learning um, has a, a, a role to play. Um, we, uh, for uh, some time now, have, have been using uh, machine learning within our fraud detection and cybersecurity uh, domains. And we're uh, increasingly looking to use 
the likes of natural language processing uh, or image recognition to better understand, say, uh, be able to um, uh, better route incoming letters or understand uh, you know, the sentiment of, uh, of a question put to us uh, or to uh, have better knowledge management. So uh, I think we're, um, we are using, uh, uh, to some extent, you know, most of what I would see as the, uh, the cutting edge uh, uh, techniques. Um, obviously the challenge is that you know, we are de delivering a service which is incredibly important to people and is also highly regulated. So we want to make sure that we are uh, very clear on why any decisions uh, were made um, when it comes to the outcome that, that people uh, are receiving. So that's probably the area where our situation would differ from a, a private company. In terms of how we can uh, better uh, learn, that's something we're super keen to do. Um, whether it's with um, UK academia uh, or with uh, startups or in fact uh, uh, any uh, UK companies who are you know, really interested in using data for uh, public good which is, is certainly our, our central uh, aim and um, we would never be uh, so arrogant as to think that you know we had uh, and a monopoly on, on the, the, those things and we're very keen to learn from, from outside. So I'm quite interested that we know that in um, when we look at the private sector, the access to skills, particularly in the uh, data science skills and looking at the artificial intelligence space, uh, the ability to gain access to the skilled talent to enable you to utilise these technologies is, is a challenge. I'm wondering on, on your side from government, is that a challenge that you see or are you able to access the skills that you need to do you know, what, what you're looking to do? So, access to skills is something that we uh, think about a lot. Um, uh, if we think about data science, uh, which is often categorised as the, the coming together of numeric skills, computer science skills and context uh, of the situation. Well, we're in a great situation where we have people with fantastic uh, numeric skills who have a fantastic understanding of our context. So one of the things that we are uh, always keen to do is, is to provide new uh, skills maybe in machine learning or other um, computer techniques to existing em employees uh, to uh, you know, uh, raise their capability. And I think from the outside market we are sitting in a, in a fantastic uh, situation in the fact that we have some of the best data uh, that's out there. Um, we're in a uh, a fortunate position where you know, we here in the DWP we both make uh, policies and we deliver on those policies so you know, we have a, a chance to use uh, great uh, data science or uh, you know both to come up with better policies and, and, and to make those a reality so we have that uh, ultimately um, you know if, if you're 
thinking about competition, then you know, maybe we can't be the highest payers, although we have, uh, you know, that's something that we're uh, looking to address. Um, but we are delivering for a social good, which I think means a lot to a lot of people and certainly means a lot to us working here. And to have great, uh, great resources, have a, a really thriving digital community here, and then to be working on great, um, great problems. And then lastly, I think um, we're great in a good position because we have such a wide national footprint. Mm -hmm. So while we're speaking today here in London, you know, this is not our largest office. We have offices in Leeds and Sheffield and Newcastle, Blackpool, Manchester. So, you know, I, I, um, while we're always looking for uh, talent, it, it's not something that necessarily keeps me awake at night. <laughs> so finally, Giles, just looking a little bit into the future, let's say five years, yeah. and looking at some of the opportunities that you think data and AI Will, will offer DWP and perhaps some of the challenges that you think you may have to, um, to overcome to really unlock the potential of data and AI? So everyone uh, here at DWP realises the uh, importance of, of, of data to our continued success and to deliver the outcomes for our customers that we really want to deliver. And we, we see that, the, that machine learning uh, will play you know, an increasing role in, in, our, uh, in the way we, we uh, operate. I think in terms of the challenges, we need to be very um, mindful of being transparent in everything we do. Uh, later this year, we hope to be um, publishing on our website our data strategy, which will include um, yeah, a, a charter of how we use uh, data. We hold ourselves to high ethical standards and um, you know, the privacy of our customers' data is, is always to the fore of our thinking. And that's so important because we need to hold the trust of citizens in, in what we do. And I think through that combination of transparency and trust and being guided by a, a strong ethical um, framework, I think that, uh, that we'll demonstrate you know, the uses of, uh, of, of data, we'll demonstrate the use that sharing of data can, can uh, push forward public good. And yeah, through the uh, ethical use of uh, machine learning, I think we will uh, be able to deliver more relevant services in a more efficient manner. Um, so I am optimistic. Yeah, we don't take any of this uh, for granted. We, we know there are challenges, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, the rise in data and uh, the rise in new techniques uh, can only be good for us. Exciting times ahead, Giles, oh, indeed. Very much so, yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today and for taking the time. We really, really do appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Oh, literally my pleasure. Thank you. So that brings to an end this first episode of Tech Your Case podcast. Please do let us know your thoughts by getting in touch with us on press at techuk.org or at techuk on Twitter or via LinkedIn. 
For more information on activities across Tech UK's programmes and upcoming events, you can also visit techuk.org. I'm Sue Daly. You can find me on Twitter at Channel Swim Sue. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.